sins, in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom he all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he has loved us, even with when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with us, or seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus Christ. All right, you may be seated. I don't know if you noticed it or not, but at the beginning of that passage, it takes what seems to be a turn, a turn in tone. I mean, as Paul began to write this letter to the Ephesians, and really what, was, what we've seen to be in our study, a universal letter, as he wrote this, as he began to write, it, it had a very positive tone to it. Really, it was easy truths, the kind we like to hear. And I'm not saying that they were easy to understand. I think there were some very complex truths as he talked about predestination and election and things like that. But as he presented it, he presents it in a way that we want to hear it, right? I mean, we, this, this is the kind of truth, in Ephesians 1, it's the kind of truth we like to use to sell the gospel as if it's a commodity when we're telling people about it. We want people to hear all the good. And Paul did that. He came and he says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because he blessed us with every spiritual blessing. We love that, right? I mean, we love to hear those words. You've been blessed. That makes me feel good. I think that that means life's going to be all right. God's on my side. And he comes and he talks about and he praises God for predestination, for election, for adoption, for this inheritance that we have. And then we love that. We love talking about it. We love thinking about it. And then he doesn't just tell us about it. But he turns to a prayer and he, he lets the Ephesians know. He lets us know what he prays for believers. He doesn't just want them to hear about it. He wants them to know it, to have wisdom and understanding of it. He wants them to be able to experience it in life. He wants them to have a full view of the hope they have in Jesus Christ. He wants them to understand and be satisfied with the inheritance that they've been given. He wants them to know and experience God's incomparable great power. He wants this for them. He wants them to know it, to experience it. We love that, right? I mean, if I came to you and I was like, you know, all I want for you is to experience God's power. In fact, that's what I, what I told you last week. I want you to know this. I pray these things for you. I want you to know this. And then he turns and he says, and you were dead. Oh, man, kick my heart. I mean, it got me right there. Was I really that bad? Was I that far gone? I mean, he had to tell me I was dead? Is this a metaphor he's using? Is he trying to help me, help me just understand it and grasp it? I don't think so. See, I think Paul's being very literal. I think it's very important that he makes this point. And I think that he was being just as intentional as he wrote these words as he had been from the very first words he wrote. See, the thing is, is that the reality is that Paul is putting this here in this letter because it needs to be there for the same positive influence that he's been portraying or pushing or promoting all the way through the letter. 
it may, it may sound negative. It may sound rough. It may sound bad. In fact, in our culture, in our day and age, this is, this is a topic we don't like to talk about. It's a place that churches like to brush over, that they like to, that they like to push aside. In fact, back in the 70s and 80s when the church growth movement really took off, there was a number of things that they did as market research to try and figure out how to grow churches in, in, in a culture that was constantly uh, changing and, and pushing back on what the church stood for. And, and their market research revealed that people don't like to talk about sin. Imagine that. Is that, that shouldn't surprise us, right? Shocker. No, I mean, come on. The reality is Paul's not shying away. You think this culture appreciated being told they were dead? You think that they wanted to, to, to hear about sin? No. Paul, intentionally being inspired by the Holy Spirit, intentionally comes to this passage because he knows. And I think this is the overarching point, the overarching reason why he puts this in this letter. He knows that until we recognize who we were, we w- it will be impossible for us to fully appreciate who God is and what God did to make us who we now are. You see, you won't, you won't fully appreciate God. You won't fully appreciate who God is or what he's done until you recognize the depths of who you were. And my fear is that for some of you sitting in here today, who you still are. Who were we? Well, Paul is pretty clear in those first three verses that we read. We won't read them again, but I think they'll be on the screen behind me. He's clear. He doesn't pull any punches. He He doesn't try to sidestep the issue. He doesn't try to even soften it in any way. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the world, following the enemy, following your own passions, the passions of your flesh, living for yourself. You see, apart from Christ, he says that we are dead, or we were dead, enslaved, and children of wrath. Three three overarching topics, three overarching themes that he brings to us and tells us how we identify ourselves apart from Christ. No longer can you stand and say, apart from Christ, I'm an architect, I'm a a real estate agent, I'm a a teacher, I'm a a banker. That doesn't work. Apart from Christ, you were dead. You were a slave and you were a child of wrath. That's who Paul says we were. You see, every other perspective, every other thing we bring, every other idea about who we are becomes moot at this point. You go out into culture and you ask people who they are. They identify on their vocation. They identify with their vocation. They identify with their relationships. They identify with, their, with, with the issues that they've struggled with, the circumstances of their life. But see, that's all about what's happened to us on the surface, right? That's, that's all about what we do. And what we've experienced. But Paul pushes past that. He says, you want to know who you really were? You know how far gone you really were? You were dead slaves, children of wrath. How's that feel? Not too good, right? That's really who I was. You see, I can stand here today and I can own that because I can also see what God has made me. But I can see how dead I was. I can see the slavery that ruled over me, and I can see the wrath 
that he had for me. We're going to really talk about that. We're really going to break those down. Today, we're going to start with that dead in trespasses and sins. See, apart from Christ, we are, we're, we're the walking dead. But we're just too dead to even realize it. I mean, if you'd asked me 15 years ago, when I was in the army, serving, the, the, just, you know, loving life, thinking that this was it, that I was going to, that I had found a career as a, as a helicopter mechanic, as an aircraft mechanic, I got to be a crew chief, and every, everywhere my helicopter went, I got to go with it. I'd ride as a door gunner. We'd fly nap of the earth. That means that we were on treetops, or if there was no trees, we are as close to the ground as we could possibly be, flying 60, 70 miles an hour. I'm telling you, when that's happening, your heart's beating. You feel the wind in your face. If you look out the window, you get smacked by bugs. It happens. You find you get you, you land you find trees you find branches in the wheels of the helicopter as a Black Hawk mechanic, so it, we had wheels and there were wire cutters in front of the wheels and we'd find branches because we were so close. I'm telling you, when you face death like that, you 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 feel alive. I thought I was alive. I bet if you had talked to these Ephesians, of course we can't right now. But I bet if you talked to these Ephesians, they'd have said that they were alive too. Because they were responding. I mean, when we talk about death, we talk about, we talk about physical death. That's the death we know. Paul says we were dead. And he's being literal. See, there's a different death that he's referring to. Because even from the moment we're born, there's a part of our life that we can't experience. And you can trace it all the way back to Adam and Eve. God created man. And he put him in this garden. If you've been to Africa, you're going to recognize this story. He put him in a garden. And he gave, them, he gave the man some, some instructions, but he, he gave him one that was special. One, one that, that, that said, here's the consequence if you don't do it. He said, you can have every fruit and every plant to eat, except for one. The tree of knowledge of good and evil. He said... The day you eat of the tree of knowledge and the evil, you will die. How many of you read Genesis? What happened? They kept living, didn't they? Genesis 3 comes, they're tempted. Adam and Eve are in the garden, they're tempted by Satan. Eve sees the fruit, sees that it's good for food, likes the idea of it, wants to be, wants to have knowledge, wants to have wisdom, wants to have insight. She's like, give me the fruit. Come on, let's have it. She eats it. And then she turns to her husband who was there. Man, you're not innocent here. She didn't trick him. Who was there? That tastes pretty good. It's juicy. Like it. You ought to try it too. So he eats. And they both drew another breath. Did God fail? Did they keep living? In that moment, they died. You see, they didn't die physically. But you can see it in what comes next. See, in Genesis 3, 17 and 3, 18, we begin to see what happened because they died. All of a sudden, their perspectives fell. No longer could they see what they were able to see before. No longer did the things that were no, no, no longer were the things that were important before remain important? All of a sudden, instead of being a, a spiritual people, spiritually living people, 
they become a very selfish, inwardly serving people. And they look at one another. You're naked. I'm naked. I don't like being naked. You know what? I don't care what you do, but I'm going to cover up. They're protecting themselves. They're hiding themselves. All of a sudden, the, the, the intimacy and the relationship that they had experienced, the, 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 the relationship that they had known, was suddenly severed because no longer was this person as important as they were before. I really just want to protect myself, even from you. And in 318, it wasn't just their horizontal relationships that were broken. 318 comes and they hear God in the garden. Now they had walked in the cool of the, in the, cool of the garden, enjoyed the garden in relationship with God. They had known and experienced God like no one else ever has. No believer, not even Paul, who's, who's up there, you know, next to, next to Jesus, he's like as close to God as we get. But Adam and Eve, they walked in God's presence. But in this new perspective, in this new understanding, in this new insight that they had, in this death that they had fallen into, what did they do? They hid. And it moves from hiding to experiencing curses. You see, and all that God had prepared them for, all that he had created them for, because of their sin, because of this spiritual death, they fell below it. They, they fell underneath of it. They lost it. And everyone who has lived since, everyone who has been born of the flesh, because Jesus tells us, John 3, that flesh gives birth to flesh. Everyone since, this is who they've been. You see, the idea is, is that death is about not being able to respond, not being able to experience, not being, not being able to, to um, react, or, or no signs of response from outward input. So like when a person dies in the body, I mean, we know they're dead. How do we know they're dead? They're no longer breathing air. Their heart's not beating. You know, those kind of things give us a clue. They're dead. Their spiritual life ceased to exist. And while they could experience God at some level, because he was still there close, you go just a few generations from, from Genesis chapter 2 to, or 3 to Genesis chapter 6, and their thoughts are evil all the time. They have wanted nothing to do with God. Where do you think we're at today? You think people are better today than they were then? We're dead. Spiritually unable to respond to spiritual truth. Spiritually, we're, we're unable to discern spiritual truth. We are unable to live spiritually. When dead people are dead, that's it. That's, that's, that's done. We put them in the ground because there's nothing else for them. Right? This spiritual death is very similar. And as much as you'd like to think it's not true, because I know a lot of you have children that you love and adore the moment they are conceived. 
the moment that you come into existence, the moment that the, that, that the egg is fertilized, the moment that it goes from being one cell to two, begins to just develop spiritually dead. It doesn't feel great. It doesn't feel good. I hate to think of myself that way, but that's exactly what Paul's telling us. Apart from Christ, we were dead. And we're so dead we don't even know it. We can't even discern it. We can't even realize it. We can't even accept it. Dead in our trespasses and sins. And I appreciate that he puts that phrase there because I want you to, I want you to recognize the comparison that all along through chapter 1, he's talking about the blessings that are in Christ. Why are we dead? What identifies us in death? Sin. There's not one of us that that doesn't, doesn't talk about it. There's not one of us that escaped this. There's not one of us that this doesn't, that this doesn't identify. We have all sin. And don't, don't miss it. The passage clearly shows that. The passage clearly teaches it. It's not, just, it's not just these Ephesians that he was writing to or writing about. It starts, he, he specifically applies it to the readers of that letter. But then he includes himself and he includes everybody that's with him and has believed alongside of him. But then by the end of verse 3, he says, I'm not just talking about us, I'm talking about all of mankind. We were dead. Apart from Christ, we still are. That's real. Painful. Difficult. It's who we were. We're enslaved. There's another word. We don't like to think about ourselves as enslaved. I mean, really, our history in, in American culture, our history... And slavery, that's terrible. Terrible. We don't, we don't even like to think of it. I mean, we try to, we try to cover it up. We try to, we try to be um, quiet about it. We don't want to remember it anymore. We're doing everything we can to forget it. I'm afraid if we forget it, we won't learn the lessons we need to learn from it. But the reality is, is that what slavery looked like in real life, spiritual slavery is just as bad, maybe, maybe worse. There's not a person in this room who's, who was as free as they thought they were. You see it. You, you see it. He says that you followed the, the world. You followed after the world. The reality is, is you weren't just followed to it. You were bound to it. it, it, it he's, the, the word in the Greek is not talking about you just, I chose to follow them. I like the world. I'm going after them. No, you're bound to it. You can't escape it. God put man in the garden and said, rule it and subdue it. Tend to it. Care for it. And because of our spiritual death, we're enslaved by it. Why do you think that I, we, we have a, a, a particular place in history in our, in our country because we have a people who are able to um, move from poverty to wealth. I mean, it's much different, much easier. It doesn't always happen. In fact, the minority, in, in, in the minority of cases, it actually occurs. But we, we are different in the way that our system works and our government works because people can actually kind of choose and, and go a direction and they can work towards an, uh, improving their, their stance in life, their position in life. 
our caste system is a little different. Just because you're born a, 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 a pauper doesn't mean that you remain a pauper. Just because you're not born with the right kind of blood doesn't mean that you remain uh, outside of the, the inner circles. There's story after story after story of people who are given to pursuing life in this world. And you hear it over and over and over. And the unfortunate reality is that when they get what they've thought that they wanted, they're never satisfied. You hear it over and over and over as, as, these, as these people who pursue stardom get it. And their lives are crumbling, falling apart. People who pursue wealth and material goods, what do you think is most important the moment that they're facing their physical death? I should have made another dollar. I wish I could have just had another hundred bucks in my account. You know, I never got that 55-inch television. Is that what we're thinking? Is that what, is that what matters? Probably not. But they don't have any choice. You see, they're bound. Apart from Christ, we are, we're, we're, we're ruled by gods who are undeserving of this position. And it starts with the world. We are ruled by them. They own us. There's nothing we can do. I think, unfortunately, that the truth is, is that even today in the church, many of us allow ourselves to be ruled by the world. We're ruled by the enemy. We like to call him Satan. To in our fallen state, it's not just temptation. It's not just influence that he can have. He can totally control you. He can come into you, possess you, and cause you to do things that a, a normal person wouldn't do. He can make you even more evil than you already are. Now, in our scientific world, you see, in our fallen perspective, we look at everything from science, and we have answers for all of this. So we don't talk about demon possession anymore. We just lock people up in padded rooms and push them to the side. The, the evil that goes on in people's lives, we don't, we don't attribute it to the enemy anymore. But Paul knew exactly where it came from. These people were bound. They were ruled by the enemy. And this is who we were. And he says that we're ruled by our flesh. And really, I think that, that not that these two aren't, these other two, these first two aren't uh, important, but I think that... It, at the in, in the midst of it all, the reality of it is that this is where it all falls and rests for us. You see, because behind, uh, behind every idol, behind every, um, every desire, behind every bit that the world uh, has to offer us or seems to have to offer us that we give ourselves to, it all comes down to this. We choose some awfully bad, evil, idolatrous things. In fact, he says that you are you're after the passions of your flesh. 
whatever feels good, whatever you want, whatever you desire, whatever's important to you, whatever you think makes sense, whatever you see uh, uh, to be truth, whatever you decide, whatever you determine, the reality is you are your own God, and you will not bow to another God. You get it? This is who we were. This is who you were. This is who I was. This is who all of mankind is, apart from Christ. And we love because we want to be loved. In fact, the Bible talks about that heathens, and Jesus talked about uh, uh, um, lost people loving. He said, hey, lost parents love their children. Lost fathers want to give their, their children good gifts. What Paul teaches us is that underneath this, there's a passionate passion for our own flesh, for our own exaltation. We love because we want to be loved. And so when a child goes astray and doesn't do what you expect them to do, parents in the world, parents apart from Christ, what are they to do? They withhold love. Husbands and wives. Apart from Christ, what are you to do when your wife or your husband quits loving you the way you want to be loved? Well, that may, he may think that's love, but I don't like that. If he's not going to love me like I want to be loved, I'm not going to love him like he wants to be loved or she wants to be loved. Forget that. Because we withhold love. We perform so that we get rewarded. Our whole, our whole economy is based on the idea that you go get a job and you perform well and you, you, and you, uh, you move forward. You move up. And when we don't get rewarded, what do we do? And I, 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 used, to, I used to feel this way. I remember when I first started working at Worldwide. And as a believer, just, just so you know, this is, I don't want you to take it out of context. This is just the reality of my fallenness coming through. I didn't get paid what I thought I was worth. In fact, I don't think anybody at Worldwide got paid what they thought they were worth. They probably weren't getting paid what they were really worth. But, but what would happen to us is, is, is that we would, we would quit working hard. I have a strong work ethic. Strong work ethic. I mean, I feel like I've got to perform. I've got to do it right. But I really expect to be rewarded. And when I'm not rewarded the way I expect to be rewarded, you know what happens? I don't want to work so hard. I don't care quite as much. In fact, what, what was interesting was after I quit, I quit working at Worldwide for about four or five months, um, silly enough to get involved back with the military again. I was a civilian contractor. Don't know why I did that. But I got paid, like, I got, a, I got almost like a $10 an hour raise when I went from Worldwide to the Avcrad out at the airport, to the, to the National Guard. About a $10 an hour pay raise, and I thought, oh, man. I, I was like a king all of a sudden, you know. I mean, that's a lot of money extra an hour. I didn't know, I was like, we got to go buy some stuff. <laughs> so that's what we did. We went and bought some stuff. But you know what happened, what was interesting now, I was new to this, and I felt like I was, ma I was making more money than I would ever made in my life. And I was like rolling in it. I was like, yeah, this is awesome. You know what was happening to the, all the guys around me who'd been in that for a while? They weren't making enough. 
I don't care. That's all I make. What? That's all you make? Do you know what people are getting paid out there? Oh, we deserve more. So we, we work for this reward. We perform hard when we're rewarded. That's what we do because it's, it's, it's about us. It's about me being exalted. It's about me getting what I want. It's about me doing what I decide. We sacrifice when we decide it's in our best interest. Oh, I can give stuff up if I'm thinking I'm going to get something back in return. You know, our whole prosperity gospel works on that whole, that, that principle specifically. The, the prosperity gospel says, hey, give me a hundred, I'll, I'll ensure you get a thousand. God repays ten times. Oh, so if I give you a thousand, I'll get ten thousand. I can sacrifice this thousand bucks for ten, ten more. Ah, that sounds great. Not only does it sound good, it makes me look good. Because when I give something up, and I'm really just expecting something in return, nobody else knows that. Nobody can see it. Nobody can discern it because it's within me. You see, this is what we were. This is who we were. We're ruled by our flesh. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the reality, the, the, the truth of the situation is, is that while this is who we were, there's some of us that still live in it. I was a Christian, allowing this to rule me allowing my passions, my, my, my desires to rule me. Nobody ever stopped me from doing what I wanted to do. Because I made sure I got that done. And then he goes on, and the third, the third thing he says about who we were is that we were children of wrath. You see, apart from Christ, God only has condemnation and curses for us. Apart from God, he, or apart from Christ, excuse me, God only has condemnation and curses for us. Nobody wants to know about this God. Nobody wants to go out and promote this God. But, but if we don't do it, if we don't warn people, they're going to continue to hear about a God that, oh, God loves you. He loves you. He wants the best for you. He'd never do anything harmful to you. God is so good. Man, and God, that's true. They don't hear it, it, that is true. But don't miss, don't miss this piece of God. Because if you remove the wrath of God, you remove His holiness, His righteousness. You undermine His love. You you, you make a God of your own creation, a God who's powerless to act, a God who's not holy, a God who's not worthy to be worshipped. You see, if God isn't this, if God doesn't have condemnation and curses for those that are outside of his provision for salvation, then all of a sudden God is no longer holy. He is no longer righteous. He's no longer a God who loves. We have created a God and a standard by which we just feel like, well, this is the way it should be. Pedophiles, rapists, murderers, politicians who are on the wrong side. Those deserve wrath. But I'm a good person. I, I treat people nice. I take care of my kids. I don't cheat on my spouse. Apart from Christ, 
the blessings that we have heard about through the chapter, first chapter of Ephesians don't belong to us apart from Christ. We, we are not receiving an inheritance apart from Christ. There is no hope apart from Christ. There, there's no looking forward. There's only longing and waiting and wishing we were, could stay in this moment because the next moment we might die and we might spend eternity separated in eternal condemnation. That's all there is apart from Christ. Dead. Slaves. Children of wrath. That's who we were. Those are tough truths. Stuff we, want to, we, we just soon not think about anymore. Stuff that we don't want to deal with anymore. But until we realize that's who we were, we will not begin to appreciate. We will not be able to appreciate what comes next. You see, in Christ, what we were is a thing of the past. Now we are alive. And it's a very different place to be. A very different position to reside in. You see, if you've been... I, I, I want to point this out just so that to, to, to hopefully encourage our hermeneutic study. If you've been in that study, you, you have, remember from last week there was clues that we were supposed to listen to. See, there's this moment that happens in the transition from three to four that should catch everyone's attention. This is who you were, dead, following the passions of your desire, children of wrath, but God. See, God all of a sudden shows up and begins to do a work. It's, it's what we're calling his gracious rebellion. It's his gracious efforts. It's his gracious work on behalf of us. If you look at it, all the, all the tenses and all the perspectives of who we were, they're past tense. That doesn't define us. It's just who we were. And so it's not to be forgotten. It's not to be overlooked, but it's to be realized this is who you were in Christ. What we were is a thing of the past. We are now alive. We're, we were dead in sin, but God in Christ made us alive. That means that we can actually experience and discern spiritual truth. We no longer have to walk in deception. We no longer have to listen to the enemy and think that he's speaking the truth. We no longer have to listen to the world and think that in some way they've got the answers. We no longer have to wonder and walk in confusion because the truth is that God has made you alive and you can know and experience him and his power and his inheritance and his hope. You can do that. You can have that. It is yours in Christ. You are alive. Praise God. You see, that's what he's done. But God showed up. We were dead, but God showed up and made us alive. I, I recognize just the, the, the perspective, the, the shift that this made. Just yesterday, I was driving, riding my motorcycle. I went on a long ride, went I don't know how far, not as far as I'd like to have gone because Amy wanted some apple butter, so I stopped at Mount Vernon. Anyway, it's a whole other story. Riding, riding, just loving life, riding along. Man, it was cool outside. The sun was shining, not a cloud in the sky. Wind blowing. 50, 60 miles an hour on, on windy roads, you know, heart pumping, bugs smacking me in the face. That hurts. Just, I'm just going to tell you that hurts. It wakes you up. Experience in life, right? 
And there's motorcyclists all over that will tell you that's an experience. There's, there's moments that, that make you feel alive. That's one of those moments. And that's why, one of the reasons why people ride motorcycles. Because when you're facing death that close, it makes you feel alive. <laughs> but here's the reality. I had Matt Papa and, I don't know, Phil Wickham and, and um, Matt Redman and uh, Sovereign Grace and Vertical Church playing on my iPod. I was wearing headphones and it became this moment, this surreal moment that I wasn't just passing through his creation at 60 miles an hour. I was experiencing the glory of God. And I was in his presence. And there was moments, tears came. And it's hard to ride a motorcycle while you get tears running. But I didn't want to stop. And I was shouting. I was throwing my fist in the air. People probably thought I was crazy. <laughs> it was so good. I was so, I was so in tune in this moment. And I recognized this spiritual life that he's given me. That he's put in me. Able to respond to him. Able to recognize him. Able to sense him. Able to understand and grasp him. Able to know his power. Breathing not just with my mouth and lungs, but with my spirit. Hearing not just with my ears, but in my spirit. Even this morning as I drove here, and I was in a truck this time, so it was a little different, but still. The realness, the presence of God, because he's made me alive. See, I was dead, but I'm alive. You were dead, but God in Christ has made you alive. I was a slave. And if you had met me 15 years ago, you could have recognized I was a slave. I was enslaved to the things of this world. I was, I was enslaved to, to uh, evil. I was enslaved to my own passionate desires. But God in Christ, God in Christ raised me up. And, and that's what it says. Actually, in, at the end of chapter 1, it says that Jesus was raised up. He raised us up out from under the rule of these things and placed us in the proper position beneath the authority of Jesus Christ. No, no, no longer do these things rule you. No longer do they own you. No longer are you bound to them. You are bound to Jesus Christ. That means, Christian, you have a choice. You don't have to walk as a victim because you've been made a victor. Christian, you don't have to fall to temptation because every time you face temptation, it's an opportunity to follow after the one you're bound to, Jesus Christ. Christian, you no longer have to give in to the passions of your flesh. You can direct your passion to the glory of God. You see that? Our passion should never be what drives us to the things of this world. Our passion for Christ ought to drive us to live. I mean, for example, we just, I just pick art. You know, art is, is something that people are just passionate about, passionate about my art. You hear these singers and songwriters, passionate about my art. Okay, good. And then they write things that are just poo. <laughs> and horrific, evil songs. I'm sorry. 
you're passionate about your flesh. You see, we don't have to be given to a passion to art anymore. But our passion for the glory of God can direct our art. It can direct what we do. It can direct how we decide, what, how we live, what we give ourselves to, what we don't give ourselves to, how we spend our time, how we don't spend our time, how we spend our money, how we don't spend our money. The passion for God's glory can be the, the motive of our life because Jesus made you alive. Praise God for it. In Christ, I was dead. In Christ, I was enslaved. In Christ, I'm sorry, outside of Christ, apart from Christ, I was dead. Apart from Christ, I was enslaved. Apart from Christ, I was a child of wrath. But, but God, in Christ, blessed me, blessed you with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. And we don't have time right now, but I'd encourage you to go back and read Ephesians chapter 1 over. Because what is withheld in these three, first three verses, has been given in Christ. Adoption, predestination, election, inheritance, wisdom, knowledge, grace, and grace that he lavished upon you. Please go read it and, and recognize this is what he's given you. Maybe, maybe, just maybe you've heard this poem. I've seen it floating around on Facebook, and I don't know why it's gotten popular. All of a sudden, I think it's older. I, I didn't go and do a whole lot of research, but let me just, I, I won't read the whole thing to you. It's kind of long. It says, when I say I'm a Christian, you recognize that? Have any of you seen it? I'm not shouting I've been saved. I'm whispering I get lost. That's why I chose this way. When I say I'm a Christian, I don't speak with human pride. I'm confessing that I stumble, needing God to be my guide. And when I say I'm a Christian, I'm not trying to be strong. I'm professing that I'm weak and pray for strength to carry on. I appreciate the sentiment of this poem, and it goes on and has, has several other verses like this. I appreciate the sentiment because it does demonstrate at some level that we've fallen, that we need help. In fact, she goes on to say that I couldn't pay the debt. She goes on to say that, that just wanting to be taught, things like that. The reality is that it demonstrates that we've fallen. But I think in light of this passage that Paul wrote here in Ephesians chapter 2, it doesn't go far enough. And I'm not a poet. So I can't rhyme, and I can't really put any rhythm into this, but I want you to know, when I say I'm a Christian, I am shouting I am saved because I was dead but made alive. I'm shouting it because I want to praise God for it because there's no other way but Him to do it. When I say I'm a Christian, no, I'm not looking at the world judging. I am praying that God gives them the life that He gave me. When I say I'm a Christian... I'm not going to judge, but I'm not going to relieve the world of his holy, righteous standard either. They are dead, and they need life. But until they have such things, they'll do what they've been enslaved to do. You see, when I say I'm a Christian, I'm not trying to be proud. I'm trying to praise the God who saved me, who made me whole, who brought me out of death and put me at the foot of Christ. That's what I'm trying to say. That's what I want people to know. I don't deserve to be here. I didn't earn it. I didn't do anything to get it. All I did was one morning step into this place where Jesus said, You are mine. And I stepped from death to life. That's it. 
don't deny who you were. Because that undermines the power of God in the gospel. But don't live like who you were any longer either. Because that denies the power of God in the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we do humbly thank you for your work in Jesus, your work through the cross. God, I, I know, I, I don't like thinking this was who I was anymore than anybody else. And God, I know that I struggle still to put these things to death, to put them aside. God, would you bring us to this moment? Just, just reveal in our hearts right now to show us that we can confess, that we can repent, and that we can walk in, right, in, in a right manner, in a manner worthy of your call. And God, I'm going to ask you, Holy Spirit, please, if there's dead people sitting in this room, would you show them the truth that they may step in faith from death to life? It's all these things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.